Well, good morning. Good to worship with you today. If you're new here, my name is Fred and I'm one of the pastors here. I wanna say welcome. Thanks for coming and checking out Redemption today. If there's anything we can do for you while you're here, please let us know. I wanna invite you to turn to Revelation chapter nine. While you're turning there, I wanna draw your attention to the Christmas shoe boxes we have over here. Uh, this is called Operation Christmas Child. And uh, we've done this in the past, but if you're new to it, the idea is we're gonna have 250 of these boxes that are empty and ready to be filled. And we're asking you to take one or two or how many ever you wanna take and fill them according to the instructions inside. Inside you'll see everything you need to know about filling one of these boxes. Uh, you'll pick a, a boy or a girl, you'll pick an age range, and then you'll purchase some items that can go in here. Uh, and then you just bring it back in. And uh, we partner with Samaritan's uh, Purse who takes these all over the globe. They literally go all around the world to all kinds of different countries and they go to children living in developing nations along with the gospel. And this is one of the easiest and, and most effective ways to get the gospel to nations where oftentimes it's hard to get the gospel. And so that's our goal this year is 250 of these. It costs $10 to um, pay for the shipping and, and the processing of these. Uh, Redemption Church, in honor of Amy Myers, who passed away this year, but really, really loved this ministry, uh, we as a church are gonna cover that $10 for these 250 boxes. And so we were really excited to do that as a way to honor her. And yeah, I think her... Her passion for this, this ministry is something we wanna carry on. And so um, you don't have to pay that. All you gotta do is fill the box. You do not, there's instructions on how to go online and pay that. You can skip that step, just bring it back and we'll make sure that gets paid and these get shipped off. So, and then we'll bring them in as, as they come in. We'll put them right back here on the stage and uh, you have about, I think, three or four weeks to get those back in. And as they are, are get prepared, we'll pray over those boxes and ask God to touch many lives through them. So if you wanna be a part of that, grab a box on your way out today, take it with you, follow the instructions inside. We'd love to have your participation. That should have given you plenty of time to find Revelation chapter nine. I'm gonna read a fairly long text today and I wanna warn you, everything you heard about Revelation uh, is about to come right face, you're about to come face to face with it here in chapter nine. If you were wondering when we were gonna get into some of the very fascinating visions and, and kind of crazy things that happen in the book of Revelation, today is your day. And so we're gonna read this chapter together and then uh, I'll pray and we'll work on this together as we go through it. Revelation chapter nine, starting in verse one. The fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star that had fallen from heaven to earth. The key for the shaft to the abyss was given to him. He opened the shaft to the abyss and smoke came up out of the shaft like smoke from a great furnace so that the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke from the shaft. Then locusts came out of the smoke onto the earth and power was given to them like the power that scorpions have on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have God's seal on their foreheads. They were not permitted to kill them, but were to torment them for five months. Their torment is like the torment caused by a scorpion when it stings someone. In those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. 
The appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. Something like golden crowns was on their heads. Their faces were like human faces. They had hair like women's hair. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had chests like iron breastplates. The sound of their wings was like the sound of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. And they had tails with stingers like scorpions so that with their tails they had the power to harm people for five months. They had as their king the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he has the name Apollyon. The first woe was past. There were still two more woes to come after this. Verse 13, the sixth angel blew his trumpet from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. I heard a voice say to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who were prepared for the hour, day, month, and year were released to kill a third of the human race. The number of mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. This is how I saw the horses and their riders in the vision. They had breastplates that were fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. The heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and from their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of the human race was killed by these three plagues, by the fire, the smoke, and the sulfur that came from their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, because their tails, which resemble snakes, have heads that inflict injury. The rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the work, works of their hands to stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk. And they did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Would you pray with me? as we consider this text. Father, we come, as we've spoken so many times already in this series, we come humbly before your word. These things are marvelous in our eyes. They are difficult to understand. They, they are perhaps fear-invoking at times, and yet we come humbly wanting to know your word, to know the truth that you desire to, for us to pull from this part of the book of Revelation today so that we might serve you better, so that we might prepare the earth for your return, so that we might turn from sin and live lives that are faithful to the gospel. Father, speak clearly to us today. Help us, help us to, to grow deeper in our walk with you. Help us even to, to learn to love better the people around us whom you've given us to, to live out our lives with and, and help us to honor you in all of these things we ask in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. Did that live up to the hype? <laughs> That's pretty wild, huh? So, so there's a lot to think about here. And if you, were, if you were following along as I was reading, you may have been trying to picture this. I think that's only natural. And as you try to picture this, you get more and more confused and more and more uncomfortable. You're like, what is this? What is all of this madness? Well, there's, there, I'm not going to answer those questions today. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I warned you at the beginning. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to make wild predictions throughout this series, as so many have before, of what 
all of these things mean, and well, I, not, I shouldn't say of what they mean, but who might fit the mold here? But I am, I'm going to, I shouldn't say I'm not going to make any, because I, I do have an opinion on this. There, there, are two, there are two different trumpets that are blown here. We're, we're in the middle of a section. We've, we've got the fifth and the sixth of the seven trumpets. We started, you, you, you might remember, uh, when we go back to the beginning, we see these seven golden lampstands. And then you see the scroll with the seven seals and those seven seals have given way to these seven trumpets and, and, and the seven trumpets are gonna give way to the seven bowls of wrath. And so we see that seven is a very important number here in the book of Revelation. Probably in most likely it's meant to help us think of the idea of completion. Seven is the number of completion. Seven days in the week. God completed creation in seven, right? And so, so these trumpets, although we're starting in the middle, are, are going to carry out the complete will of God that he has for these trumpets. And we're just looking at a small piece. But this small piece brings to us some imagery that we have to consider. During the first trumpet, you have this fallen star, this star that had fallen from heaven. And in obedience to the kingship of this star that had fallen from heaven, you have these locusts who are given the power to inflict harm upon people on the earth. You have, what's interesting is you have locusts that are expressly forbidden to do what locusts do. Locusts eat leaves. They eat, they eat vegetation. And we have here that the locusts were forbidden to, to harm the grass of the earth, verse four, any green plant or any tree. But instead, these locusts are to harm, inflict torment upon anyone on the earth who does not have God's seal on their foreheads. Now, this isn't the first time in Revelation we've come across this idea of God's seal. But these locusts are going to torment people so much so that they will seek death and not find it. That sounds terrifying. Perhaps you've been in that place where perhaps you've experienced either physical suffering or emotional suffering so much so that you wished to die. And this is exactly, precisely what these locusts are going to inflict on people. However, they will not die. They'll just wish they were dead. The appearance of these locusts gets even more interesting. They have all of these different, different characteristics that make it so hard to put together an image of what these things are like. And it's, it's likely that, these, that this description of their, their appearance is really meant to describe a, not so much what they look like, but, but their characteristics and perhaps some of their origin. But I think to understand the locust, the key is verse 11. They had as their king the angel of the abyss. And we're given his name in Hebrew and in Greek, both of which mean destruction. That, that verse, along with the description of this king as a star that had fallen from heaven. There's, there's so much in here about this description that points us in one direction. But I must warn you, there are different interpretations of who this fallen star and these locusts are. 
as I was studying this week, some said that this fallen star is Muhammad and that the locusts that obey him are the armies of Islam. And there are times in history when, when, when that description would have fit very nicely. There's a Catholic interpretation that says this is Martin Luther, the leader of the Protestant Reform, Reformation, that, that he is this star that has fallen from heaven that leads this miserable army of locusts. The Protestant, there, are, there are Protestant interpretations that would say, no, this fallen star is the Pope. And that was very popular during Martin Luther's time. Of course, he argued often that the Pope was indeed the Antichrist. And so what are we to make of all of this? Well, I think there's one being that, that fits the description best. And that's probably the most common interpretation. That this is Satan. This is the devil. The idea of a star that has fallen from heaven, that is language that points us in the direction of Satan. The idea that he is the king of destruction and that the, the, the army that, of locusts that follows him and inflicts torment upon people. To me, this sounds like Satan and his demonic army. And so that's where I land. Uh, I don't base my salvation on that, nor should you, but I think it's helpful to, to take a stab at interpreting this passage. I would say that the, the fifth trumpet that is being blown here, the first woe that is being described is the reality that Satan and the many other fallen angels who have joined him in their rebellion against God are the ones being described here. Then we move on to, we have not just this fallen star and these, these demonic locusts, but we have another trumpet is blown. And then we see the angels bound at the great river Euphrates being prepared and then being released in order to inflict mankind an army of 200 million. That's, uh, uh, I think, an interpretive key there because there's no place on earth where 200 million soldiers could reasonably gather for battle. So I think this is figurative. And my best stab at this as well is that this is just another description of the harm that Satan and his demonic army are going to inflict on mankind. Okay. So how's that? Is that enough? Should we stop there? <laughs> Have a nice Sunday. Enjoy the Steeler game. <laughs> no, I think there's, instead of, this is, this is one of the challenges of Revelation is that you get to a lot of these places where you have to just kind of, I don't want to say throw your hands up as if you give up, but you have to be, you have to be rational and say, I, you know, there, there, there's just not good reason to plant a flag on every hill that you see here in Revelation. And so we have to do the hard work we have to do the hard work to mine from the text what is going to be helpful, what is going to point us in the right direction. And I have some thoughts that arise from this text. One, I think in, if you have your handout in front of you and you wanna follow along, um, by the way, I give you space on the handout there to, to uh, jot down some notes on the fallen star and the 200 million and their horses. You can take your, if you wanna take your own guesses, if you, if you want to take your own guesses at who those are, feel free to jot those down. 
But here's some things that, that we can be certain of. One, the, the first thing you'll see on there, the trumpets are a warning. They are a warning to repent before the wrath of God is poured out. One thing that Revelation reveals for sure is that God is going to thoroughly judge the earth. And for those who endure his judgment on earth and do not repent of their sin, that judgment will extend into eternity. And so God is warning us, and he is warning the inhabitants of the earth to repent before the wrath of God is poured out. It's important, I think, to understand the trumpets in that way. These are warnings. What do trumpets do? Trumpets get your attention. They alert you. Oftentimes that, that a message is going to follow or that, that there is a significant event about to happen. These trumpets are meant to get our attention. So the purpose of allowing Satan and his demonic army to inflict harm upon mankind is that, that this is in a sense, God saying, if, if you don't listen when everything is going well, Perhaps you will listen when things aren't going so well. And so they're allowed to inflict harm on mankind, not to kill mankind initially, but to get man's attention. And so therefore, I think there are three ways we should respond. Each of these will be on the handout. The first way in which we should respond is that we should rest in God's sovereignty. Rest in God's sovereignty. So, so many times, if, we, if this is why I say we have to dig deep. We have to mine the important truths of the book of Revelation because if we just take it at, at face value and don't do the hard work of really understanding what's going on here, it can be fear-invoking. We, we can become afraid of what we're reading and how it might play out in our, li in our lifetime. But we are, this is actually, one of, one of the things we should walk away from this passage is we should actually rest in God's sovereignty. Why do I say that? Because in all of this, God is exercising sovereign rule and sovereign control over all the events of the earth. In verse one, the key for the shaft to the abyss was given to him. It's, Satan has no power that is not delegated power. Satan has no power that is not permitted from God who sits on the throne. And we know that God is good. Therefore, if God allows it, then he allows it for the sole purpose of accomplishing his good will. This is, of course, the biblical view of all suffering that, that anything, any harm that God allows to come upon us, he, he, uh, he intends to use for our good and for his glory. Satan, the, 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 there's, there's, uh, uh, sometimes we get confused about how the world works as if there are two competing powers. One is good and one is bad. You've got God and Satan and they're fighting it out to see who's going to win. That's not what's going on. There's no fight there's no, there's, no, there's no real struggle. It's only what God permits. 
Satan has no power to defeat God. Satan has no power that is not given to him by God. You see the restraint that, that even Satan and his demonic army are forced to exercise here. Verse four, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth. Well, if, if Satan has the same kind of power that God has, they can do whatever they want, but they're not allowed to do whatever they want. They cannot harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have God's seal on their foreheads. You may, you may struggle with, well, that's worse. <laughs> why, does God, why does God allow Satan to not harm vegetation, but to harm people? Again, this is, this is, the, this is a, a final attempt to get man to respond to the gospel. We'll see that as we move through this text together. They were not permitted to kill them, but were to torment them for five months. Which reminds me so much of the story of Job. The story of Job uh, is a story of a man who, who lost everything, endured incredible suffering, and we're told in the book of Job that that was, whoa. <laughs> That's wild, huh? Imagine if that happened when I was like reading about the Satan coming out of the abyss and stuff. That'd be freaky. <laughs> We're told in the book of Job that all of this harm that comes upon him came about out of an agreement between Satan and God. Satan approaches God and, and God gives him permission to afflict Job. Think about that, that's wild. He, this is what God says to Satan in, in Job, I think this is chapter two, I didn't write down the chapter reference. Very well, the Lord told Satan, everything he owns is in your power. However, do not lay a hand on Job himself. And so Satan goes out, he has, he has, he has this restriction. You cannot touch Job himself, but you can destroy his stuff. And so he does that. He goes and he destroys, he destroys everything that Job has, but he does not touch Job. And Satan comes back and he's given further instruction to go and he can now harm Job physically, but he cannot take his life. And if that, if that is uh, somehow discouraging or disappointing to you when you think of how the world works, you just have to read the book of Job. It's, it's a really fantastic story of God's sovereign love. But I'm not gonna, we're, we're not studying Job right now, so I'm not gonna do that. We're, what we're studying here is God's sovereign control over even Satan, over our greatest enemies. Verse 14, back in, in Revelation chapter nine, it says, say to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels bound at the great river Euphrates. Do you see how nothing happens until God says it's time for it to happen? Nothing happens without his permission. Nothing here, none, none of the, the, the crazy and, and fear-invoking things that we read about in the book of Revelation are outside of God's sovereign control. And so if you know God, if you know him in his goodness, then you can rest in his sovereignty. You can trust in 
what sometimes might look like confusing uh, events that happen that, that really conflict with how we might often view God, we just need to rest and know that he's sovereign. He's in control. A lot of these things that, that happen in the book of Revelation remind us of that. That's why uh, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 26, he says, therefore, don't be afraid of them. He's warning his disciples that the world is going to hate them. But he says to his disciples, don't be afraid of them since there is nothing covered that won't be uncovered and nothing hidden that won't be made known. Verse 28, he says, don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Jesus says, don't fear people who can kill you. That's a different way of thinking. <laughs> I think we, we probably think we should fear people who can kill us or want to kill us. But Jesus says, no, there's, there's, there's somebody greater. Don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. He's, he's, ex, he's exercising his sovereign rule even over the death of sparrows. Even the hairs of your head have all been counted, so don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. The crazy moral of that story is even if somebody kills you for obeying Christ, God has that in control. He will redeem it. <laughs> he will use it for good, your good, and for his glory. And so we rest in God's sovereignty. Three ways we should respond to this text. One, rest in God's sovereignty. Number two, recoil at man's depravity. You are to read through Revelation and be sickened by what man is capable of. Man's depraved nature and, and restless desire to commit sin should cause us, fellow human beings, to recoil. Verse 20 says, the rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands to stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk. And they did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Now, we've read just two of the trumpets, but there were four that occurred before this, and each of them devastating to the inhabitants of the earth. And the point is, even after, even after all of these warnings, even after all of the things that happened that should have got man's attention to turn from his sin to God, man does not repent. He refuses to turn from the things that are about to bring God's wrath on the earth. We don't have to look too far to see evidence of this today. Both in, a, in the society that we live in and in our own hearts and minds. 
Isn't it amazing? So, so, so many of you who read through the Bible, uh, who've been reading through the Bible with us this year as we attempt to go through the Bible in one year together, were astonished when we were reading the Old Testament. How many times God intervened in, in the nation of Israel and spared them and showed them his goodness and mercy and how quickly they would forget and turn from him. And we, and we read these stories and we're like, how could they do that? How could they forget what God has done? And then like an hour later, we're like, oh, I do that too. <laughs> we forget so easily. We, we are, we, we, experience mercy and goodness from God on a second-by-second basis, and yet we're so quick to turn and sin. Not only should we recoil at the depravity expressed in the world, but perhaps even more so, we should recoil at the depravity we find in our own hearts. We who have been shown the grace of God, who continue to sin, It's not a popular thing to teach today. It's not a popular thing to believe or to hold to the idea that man is bad, (laughs) that man is is the enemy of God in the story of his creation. But if we're honest with ourselves and if we lay aside our preconceived ideas that we are somehow the good part, the good, the good character in the story, then there is abounding evidence that this is true. Romans 1 tells us that, that because man turned from God, because they, verse 28, because they did not think it worthwhile, this won't be on the screen, uh, to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. Wow. I'm sure you, you saw at least a few sins in there that you commit on a regular basis. It's not just the people that we find morally repugnant who are guilty of sinning before God. It's all of us. The proud, the gossips, the disobedient to, to parents are thrown in there with Murderers and sexually immoral people. There's a story that, that I think highlights man's determined, determined attitude to stay in sin that Jesus tells. We often refer to it as the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And the story goes that there was a rich man who had many things in life and there was a poor beggar that often would be found begging at this rich man's gate and they both die and they go into the afterlife and the, the poor man is taken into paradise. And the rich man who boasted in everything that he had in life uh, is taken into torment. And at one point, the, the rich man who's now in torment is 
is begging for mercy. He says it this way. He says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus, the the poor man, to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Do you see how the tables have turned? In life, the poor man, and listen, the moral of the story is not rich man bad, poor man good. That's not the moral of the story. The moral of, of, of the story here is, is connected to this man who had, who had great comfort in life, refused to show mercy to this poor man, and now that the tables have turned, he's asking for the poor man, Lazarus, to show him mercy. And Abraham says, son, remember that during your life you received your good things, just as Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here while you're in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot. Neither can those from there cross over to us. Father, he said, then I beg you to send my father's house because I have five brothers to warn them so that they won't also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said they have Moses and the prophets and they should listen to them. Why don't they listen to the scriptures? That's what, that's what he's saying. If you want them to be warned, the scriptures are sufficient for warning them. And he says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And in prophetic nature here, Jesus says these words, but he told him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. We ought to recoil at man's depravity. Man refuses to repent. Man refuses to come to God on his terms. And that should get our attention. That should invoke in us a response. Why is man so depraved? And if man is this depraved, what is the solution? Well, you can see where this is going. The third response that we should have is that we should repent of sin and take refuge in Jesus. While we rest in God's sovereignty, we recoil at man's depravity. And the ultimate effect of that on us should be to repent of sin and take refuge in Jesus. The good news is, is that the time to repent is still here. The time to turn from sin to God's mercy is right now. We can, we, we don't have to fulfill the words of verses 20 and 21. The rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. This is a warning. You're you're supposed to be appalled when you read that. What? They didn't repent? After everything God did to get their attention? After all that, that, that he did so that their eyes would be opened and they would say, you know, maybe we're not doing things right. Let's, let's try God's way. They still don't repent. And that should invoke in us a desire to repent while we still can. Verse four, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have God's seal on their foreheads. The seal that is 
spoken of here is a, a seal of ownership. Wealthy people would put, place their seal on things to signify to others, this belongs to me. And the, the invitation here is to receive God's seal upon our lives and to be his, to belong to him to turn from our sin, to take refuge in the only one who can save man from his depravity, the sinless son of God, Jesus Christ, who died in our place on the cross so that we can live. To take his seal is to receive his offer of salvation. To take his seal is to receive his right of ownership, of possession. Do you remember, I love that song that we sang right before the sermon time today that speaks of how he shepherds us. Do you remember from the previous passage that we looked at that those who were his, he shelters them and he shepherds them. That's what it means to have his seal upon us to belong to him. He takes responsibility for our welfare. He takes responsibility for our joy, for our good. He is preparing for us an eternity with him. But we must repent of our sin. We must take refuge in Jesus while refuge may be found. This this. This whole idea of taking his seal and being protected from the torment that these, this demonic army is going to bring upon mankind or is bringing upon mankind, it just reeks of Passover language. The story of the Passover is a story of God in similar fashion carrying out, pouring out his wrath upon mankind yet inviting people to take refuge in him and be spared of that wrath. And so what happens at the Passover is God comes to the Israelites who are enslaved in Egypt. He, he makes known to them he's about to judge the Egyptians. He's going to bring death upon the firstborn of every man and animal of every household in Egypt. And this death will happen to the Israelite slaves as well unless... They take refuge in him by sacrificing a Passover lamb. He gave them very specific instructions and they were to take the blood of that lamb and they were to paint it on their doorposts so that when the angel of death comes rushing through Egypt, every house that has the blood of the lamb painted on the doorposts will not experience that death. That is a picture of salvation. That is a picture of what it means to repent of sin and to take refuge in Jesus. And now as New Testament believers, not as Old Testament Israel who celebrated Passover, we are given a similar picture in communion. Jesus, when he prepares to go to the cross, he sits down to have the last supper with his disciples and he takes bread and he takes the glass of wine and he uses these as pictures. He uses these as a, a description of, of what it means to be in him, to take into ourselves his body which was broken for us, to take into ourselves the wine which signifies his blood which was poured out and thus being sealed by him. Thus receiving the mark, the seal of God that we belong to him. 
and that the harm that the locusts were free to inflict upon mankind was not to touch those who were sealed by God. Satan and his army of demons cannot harm you, for you are in Christ. Isn't that great news? But even, even better news is that the one who not only has the power to kill us, but to cast our souls into hell will not harm us. As Jesus said, don't just fear those who can kill the body and do no more. Fear those who can kill the body and punish your souls. And we are safe. We are safe in our refuge, Jesus Christ. And so I wanna invite the worship team to come up. They're gonna prepare to lead us because we're gonna take communion together today. As we prepare for communion, I really just want you to ask yourself some simple questions. Do you desire to repent of your sin? Do you wish to turn from the things that are bringing God's judgment upon the earth and instead receive the mercy of God poured out in Jesus Christ, his son? If so, it may be one that this is the first time you are desiring to do that. And if that's you, then today is your day of salvation. If this is the first time you've thought, I really do wanna be forgiven of my sins and I wanna receive Jesus Christ into my life as my Lord and Savior, then today is your day of salvation. Today is the day of your new birth, a new life that begins at the moment of salvation. And if that's you, I wanna invite you to, to accept Jesus Christ into your life and into your heart and receive communion with us today. For many of us, though, we've already done that, but we just understanding the importance of repentance of sin and understanding the need to, to be in communion with Jesus Christ, our Savior, want to continue in that attitude of repentance. And today, communion is an opportunity to do that. It's an opportunity to say, but by the grace of God, if it were not for Jesus Christ crucified, I'd still be in my sins. And so today I celebrate the communion that I have with him by taking the bread and the juice in remembrance of who he is and what he has done. If you fit into either of those two categories, while the team plays, I'm gonna uncover the communion elements. I invite you to come forward whenever you're ready. Take hold of the communion elements. Take them back to your seat because we'll take them together. Just hold on to them for, for a few moments where everybody has a chance. And I do want to ask if you are not trusting in Jesus Christ and don't desire to trust in Jesus Christ today, please take this time not to take communion, but take this time to reflect, to ask God to show you your need for him that he might move in your heart today. So let's pray together. Fathers, we prepare our hearts for communion. We want to turn from our sin. We want to turn away from the very thing that separated us from you. And we want to turn to Jesus, the one who brings us back. The one in whom we take refuge. The one in whom is our salvation. So God, open our eyes to see the depth of our need for you. The depth of our own depravity. That we might once again repent. Rejoice in your forgiveness. Father, if there's any among us in need of salvation who have not yet received Jesus Christ as Savior, but today you have prepared their hearts and they're ready. 
God, I rejoice in that. I thank you for opening their eyes to see the need of their Savior. I ask that you would forgive them of their sins, come into their lives, grant them new life, bring them into the family of believers that are gathered here today. And may we celebrate together through communion. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, whenever you're ready, please come forward and receive the communion elements and then hold on to those.
Christ on the night that he was betrayed, took the bread and he broke it. and He informed his disciples this was his body, which would be broken for them. Today, let's, in remembrance of the Lord's body broken on our behalf, take the bread together. In the same way, he announced the new covenant, the covenant in his blood. No longer would the sacrificing of bulls and goats be necessary because the Passover lamb was about to be sacrificed. The sacrifice that would last once and for all, that would take away all of our sin. Let's take the cup in remembrance of Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus, as we remember you in communion this morning, May we remember you always. Just as we celebrate our union with you, may we walk in that union throughout the week. We ask in your name, amen.